Well, good morning, church. I am Pastor Jay. It is a privilege, I mean that, to gather as a flock and to worship every Sunday. I invite you to open your copy of the Scriptures or your device to the end of the New Testament to a small letter, an inspired letter of the Holy Spirit we call 1 Peter. It's got a one in front of it, a digit. There are two of these in the New Testament. There's a first and a second Peter. And we begin a new series this weekend in this New Testament letter. Peter is a small letter, First Peter, 105 verses. That does all it encompasses. It brimming with a very powerful message of hope. And hence, the subtitle of our series, Finding Hope in a Hostile World. And it feels right now as if the cultural conversation is more heated than ever. And it just feels like the anger quotient in our culture continues to surge. It is a great time. I planned these series the year before, but providentially, this just seems like a really good time uh, to dive into this letter and talk about hope. Uh, hope is a desperately needed issue, obviously, in our culture today. This last Thursday in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article about a new report from the National Center for Health Statistics. And the report shows a very disturbing increase just in the last couple years of suicide rates and suicide attempts in our country, especially among uh, males and among younger adolescent females. The article noted that the uh, National Suicide Prevention Hotline just a year or so ago shortened its phone number to a three-digit number, 988. And then just last year, from July to December, a few months ago, tracked a, uh, the increase in phone calls from the previous year. It almost had doubled uh, since the previous year. Peter has a very powerful message for a culture of despair, and that message is that real hope, real, genuine hope is available to anyone who has experienced spiritual rebirth. I was talking to somebody right after the first service, and they said, you know, when, when you spoke about spiritual rebirth and being born again, suddenly like the dots clicked, and I think that's what had happened just a couple years ago in his car. He said, it was like, I realized suddenly I had a different relationship with the living God. And that is what Peter's talking about here. Not going to church, not being religious. He's talking about those who've been genuinely born again. They have experienced spiritual rebirth. And Peter says, if that is you, you have very real hope available to you. If you look at verse 3, We'll come back to it, but just to read it as we dive in. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has shown us new birth into a living hope. He has given us new birth into a living hope. So that is what we're talking about here today, is those who are born again having the possibility of hope. So Peter declares, as we begin the letter, that a true follower of Jesus has a living hope because their faith is rooted in a living God. That's the difference between every other world religion. First Peter has a very warm pastoral tone to it. I think you will see that as we go through it. And it is filled, brimming over with gospel promises. 
And so we're going to dive into this small New Testament letter for the next three months, a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the dig is going to be very well worth it. As we begin this morning, we're going to dive into the first 12 verses of chapter 1. We're just going to take this letter chunk by chunk, as gospel preaching churches do, as they preach through the Scriptures. Uh, Before we dive into the first 12 verses this morning, I want to do something that I often do when we start a series in a book of the Bible, and that is address some issues of prolegomena, which means those issues that come first, some interrogative questions, the who, what, when, why kind of thing, so that we have context. Some of us here have been studying our Bibles for years. Some of us don't know our Bibles at all. Wherever you're at on that scale, it's just a good thing to do some review. And so I want to lay the ground so we're all sort of on a level ground, so to speak, and just are reminded Who is Peter? What's his context? Where is he writing from? What's his theme? All that. So first of all, who wrote 1 Peter? If you look at your English translation, generally, first word in English, Greek, is Peter. First couple words in the Greek text, Peter, identified as Peter. Now, some have doubted this. There have been, in the last number of decades, those who have attacked Peterine authorship, it's called. And there's a number of reasons for this. One of them is, one of the arguments is, the Greek of 1 Peter is too lofty. It's too complex for, you know, quote, a simple fisherman kind of. That's nonsense. There's every reason to believe historically, biblically, theologically, linguistically, that the Apostle Peter wrote this. We're going to go with that. That's what it says here. There's no textual variance in the Greek manuscript tradition. There's no suggestion that Peter somehow shouldn't be in the first verse. So, we're going to take this as the church has taken this for 2,000 years, as written by the Apostle Peter, along with his second letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, Peter, you may know, is one of the 12 disciples, and he is the most mentioned disciple. And anytime you see a list, especially in the synoptic gospels, of the disciples, he always comes first. Very interesting. His given name was Simon, and Jesus changed it to Peter, Petros in Greek, which means stone or means rock. It was likely a prediction of Peter after the resurrection, after Pentecost, and the change that came into him after the resurrection, after Pentecost, and change he did. If you know anything about Peter in the gospels, the guy with the foot-shaped mouth, because his foot was always in his mouth and doing crazy stuff. And then if you know anything about that, and then the Peter in the, in, in the book of Acts, the one book of history we have in the New Testament that records the history of the other church, the Peter of the Gospels and the Peter of the book of Acts are two different human beings. After the resurrection of Jesus and after Pentecost, a guy who had been known for the wimp factor, petty, vindictive, self-righteous, prone to betrayal. He committed the same sin as Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He denied him. In fact, three times. The only difference was Judas didn't repent. Peter did. That was Peter prior to the resurrection, prior to Pentecost. If you look at Peter on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost, you have a whole different set of adjectives that apply to him. Bold, daring, confident, on fire for Christ. And as far as we know from Eusebius, the church historian died a martyr's death. In fact, we're even told probably crucified upside down. So, 
In light of that, I want to just draw two quick lessons from the life of Peter that I think are very encouraging. Young people, I want you to hear these lessons. Kids, these are very encouraging lessons from the life of Peter before we go any further. One is, considering who he was and what he became, no matter what sins we've committed, no matter what you've done in your life, God offers forgiveness. He offers redemption and he offers renewal. If you're here and you're alive and you're breathing, don't let us ever say, well, I've done too much. You don't know what I've done. God does. Peter denied Christ and he was completely restored after he, after he repented. Second lesson we draw from Peter's life, as much of a failure as he was in the, in the Gospels, failure does not nullify God using us in significant ways in the future depending on our response. That's a key, depending on our response. We're going to see that as we get into Peter's letter over the next three months. Just because we suffer, just because we have difficult things happen to us doesn't mean we'll automatically end up in a better place. We could end up in a much worse place. It depends on our response. So, who wrote this letter? Peter. Secondly, when was it written and where was it written from? Peter's likely writing from Rome, probably. He's probably writing during the reign of Emperor Nero who was especially brutal as, an, as, as a, one of the Roman Caesars, probably 62, 63 AD. Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers, genuine believers in Jesus, scattered around what is modern-day Turkey. That's who he's writing to, genuine believers, meeting in clusters, meeting in homes, meeting perhaps in synagogues on the Lord's Day. He's writing to them and sharing this letter. If you look at verses 1 and 2 again, especially verse 2, that's all these places mentioned are in what is today we would call Turkey, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. He's probably writing from Rome. Where do we get that? You go back to chapter 5, verse 13. Peter makes a small, short, cryptic comment, last, second to last verse in the letter. She, this is probably a feminine reference, sometimes the church is called that, who is in Babylon, probably not Babylon, what we would call today the ruins of Babylon in Iraq. Babylon was used in the first century as a code word often for Rome. She, the, so the church probably, most New Testament scholars believe, if you want to really understand that first phrase, the church in Rome Chosen together sends you her greetings. That's most New Testament scholars agree. Peter's writing this from Rome. All right, what's the, what's the theme here? Let's get down to brass tacks here. What is the theme of this letter we're going to dive into for three months? If you're newer here, if you're visiting with us, we like to take deep dives into various sections of the Bible. I just finished a series in the Ten Commandments. We were going pretty much verse by verse through the Ten Commandments. Here we're going to go section by section. This fall, we're going to do a little different series. We're going to do the Minor Prophets, 12 Minor Prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And there we're going to take one book per Sunday for three months. And look, so the key to biblical preaching is taking a chunk of Scripture. 
can be a word, can be a phrase, can be a verse, can be a pericope, can be a paragraph, or it can be a book, but to anchor the sermon somehow in the Word of God and see what that passage has to say, what it reveals. Hence the phrase expository preaching. So the theme of Peter that we're going to dive into is this, finding hope in times of suffering. Hence the subtitle of the series about finding hope in a hostile world. Specifically, though, a certain kind of suffering. Now, I think the principles apply to all suffering. Most New Testament scholars thought that. But the context here is a certain kind of suffering. For the most part, Peter is talking about moral evil here. The evil that is, comes from the hands of other human beings in form of persecution, mistreatment, rejection, harassment, and oppression. Peter is writing in the first century to genuine believers scattered around what is modern-day Turkey who were experiencing very intense levels of hatred and oppression and abuse and persecution and even martyrdom. Many of those Peter's writing to are being hunted down for their faith and even killed, and he's reminding his readers of something that all of us forget on a regular basis. I do, you do. And here's what we forget. <laughs> something Peter's going to come back to over and over. He's reminding his readers they should not be surprised at the suffering they currently find themselves in. How often in the West, especially in the affluent West, does the church think the exact opposite today? Now, even back then, they were surprised. Even more today, we don't expect significant suffering for our faith, especially when it comes to persecution and hassle and rejection. Now, we're, we're seeing more and more of it, and maybe I think cultural expectations and church expectations are changing but having said that, Peter is reminding them, don't be surprised when you suffer. He's writing to those who are Christians, and especially when you suffer for your faith. Now this again, I think it applies to suffering in general, because we live on a fallen sinful planet. If you looked at chapter 4, verse 12, he says this exact thing about not being surprised at our suffering. And some of us here this morning are not, but others of us have come into a very difficult season of life right at this moment, and we're very much caught off guard, and some of us are actually still in a state of shock about the suffering we're in. And that's understandable. Peter is saying, though, the Christian life, living in general, is suffering, but the Christian life sometimes has additional suffering because of what we hold to and the world's view of it, and the oppression, and the hassle, and the rejection, and the persecution that come because of it. Jesus couldn't have been clear. He said, they hated me, and they're going to hate you if you're one of my followers. So here, chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, Peter writes, dear friends, he's writing again to those who know Christ, who've been spiritually reborn, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to, to do what? These are not just random things to test you. That means ultimately these are driven and ordained by and appointed by and overseen by God. I was reading to my grandsons the other day on the porch, on our porch swing, and we're going through a, a missionary biography by Adoniram Judson. And I don't know how much you know the story about Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, but he, um, his life is a festival of tragedy. 
And we're reading one particular section that was just filled with tragedy. And so I have this eight and six-year-old grandson beside me. And I stopped right in the middle of the story and I said, okay, time for uh, one of Gramps' uh, theological questions, guys. I said, Here, here's my question. Who sends persecution and discouragement? Eight-year-old Isaiah, my left, says, God. Six-year-old Simeon on my other side says, the devil. Thought, this is good. We got a good conversation ready to go here. Sometimes it's very clear in Scripture that evil people and Satan are an immediate cause of suffering or his demons, but it's very clear in Scripture, the doctrine of providence, and the church has seen this for 2,000 years and before, that God the Father is the ultimate cause of all that happens in our life. And there is the great hope. That's counterintuitive to a lot of people until they realize that is actually our hope in life that God is in charge of the details. And Peter is saying that. I don't want you to be surprised. This is not a surprise. This has come on you to test you. Don't be surprised if something, as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. There's a strong current throughout this letter to rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed, here's the flow, again, joy, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Jesus, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let me put two quotes up on the screen. One from R.C. Sproul, a lesser known of his books, Surprised by Suffering, and one by Paul Tripp, I'll have another quote a little bit later by suffering. But look up top quote first. R.C. Sproul surprised by suffering because he's saying exactly what chapter 4, verse 12 is saying. My purpose in writing this book is that you would not be surprised when suffering comes into your life. Now, he's, again, he's, he's writing to those who are genuinely saved. I want you to see suffering is not at all uncommon, but also that it is not random. That's key. It is sent by our Heavenly Father, who is both sovereign and loving, for our ultimate good. Indeed, I want you to understand. Notice this last line. I want you to understand suffering is a vocation, a calling from God. You ever thought of it in that terms? You ever thought of your suffering as a vocation and something appointed by God? Paul Tripp in his great book on suffering, kind of an interesting comment. The Bible is so honest about suffering, it recounts stories that are so weird and dark that if they were on Netflix, you probably wouldn't watch them. There's a lot of garbage on Netflix you shouldn't watch anyways. But his point is clear. The Bible is filled with some pretty weird stuff, some pretty dark stuff. And it doesn't pull any punches when it comes to the suffering we endure. So at the heart of 1 Peter is this reminder that true Christians, true born-again Christians, far from being protected from all suffering, far from just living a life of health and wealth, as the health and wealth prosperity preachers falsely promise, the true Christian life is a life that is a calling, a vocation into suffering and abuse. Sometimes seasons of intense suffering and rejection and harassment and abuse. That's what Peter is telling. He's reminding his people there, don't be shocked when this happens. He also wants to remind us of something very important. Young people, I really, 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 really want you to hear this especially because you're at an age when key decisions are being made about how you're going to view God. Peter wants to remind us that just because we suffer, we will not automatically come out in a better place, spiritually and emotionally. That's not true. Here is an undeniable fact when you suffer. 
When you're suffering, again, whether it's from the hands of another person or if it's a result of what we call natural evil, disease or tragedy or death or something, either way, when you're suffering, you will never stay in a neutral place ever, ever. You're either going to be moving inexorably one direction or the other. Suffering can result, that's Peter's hope here, in growth in courage, growth in joy, growth in being more centered in others than becoming, one of the dangers of suffering is we become self-absorbed and we talk about ourselves all the time and we talk about our problems all the time. We can't end up there. Or, Peter says, our suffering can result in a completely opposite trajectory and we can end up in growth, in joy, and in courage. So we will never be the same when we suffer, ever. We're either going to be moving towards disappointment, bitterness and despair, and increasingly being self-absorbed, or we're going to move towards growth, courage, and joy. What's it depend on? Our response. Our response. We will not stay neutral. And Peter is telling us in so many words, response is everything. Everything to how you end up down the road. All right, with that, let's dive into the first 12 verses. I'm going to take this sort of as a, as a mini sermon. But it was, we need to look at the prolegomena because you will get a lot more out of the series if we understand and lay the groundwork at first of the context, the who, the what, the why, and all that. We've already seen in the first two verses, Peter tells us when and where this was written. Now we come to the opening section, the heart of the opening section, which is verses 3 to 12. Grammatically, this is a one long run-on sentence. I was reading a Greek scholar this week reminding us just how long this sentence is from verse 3 to what we would call verse 12. As for content, these verses, 3 to 12, give us three reasons why God's people can have real hope. Those that know Christ, who have the Holy Spirit alive in them, three reasons. And what, here's what's so interesting structurally as you look at these verses. The three reasons he gives why you can really have hope no matter what you're going through, each of the reasons is rooted in a member of the Trinity. Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit. That's not my structure. That's the Holy Spirit structure. The first chunk here is going to tell you why you can have hope based on what God the Father's done. Then the second chunk will tell us about why we can have hope based on what God the Son has done and is doing. And then the third movement from verses 10 to 12 are going to tell us why a Christian can have hope based on what God the Holy Spirit has done and is doing. So it's very Trinitarian. You can miss that, but once you see it, you will see it's not an artificial structure. It's very much there in the text. So first of all, first reason that we can have hope if we know Christ is connected to something God the Father has done. It's in verses 3 through 5, and it is this. We can have real hope because God the Father actually, literally raised his son, Jesus, from the dead in space and time. It really, really took place in history. And that this is a reason true believers can have hope. This is stated in verse 3. Couldn't be clearer. Praise be to God, the Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
So there's the first thing the Father did to give us hope. There is hope of life eternal. And then here's another thing that God the Father has done and is doing. Into an inheritance, meaning our salvation, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We call that the doctrine of eternal security, that once you are truly saved and born again, once the Holy Spirit has done that in your life, you can never, ever lose your salvation. Why? Because you had really nothing to do with it ultimately. God the Father is the one who elects. He is the one who draws. He is the one who summons. He is the one who regenerates. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who sanctifies. And he is the one who will glorify. It is a God project from beginning to end. Therefore, theologians speak of it as eternally secure once you are born again. That is very clear that God the Father is doing that, and it, it is, it's an inheritance, it's imperishable, it's secure. And then one other thing, Peter also tells us something else the Father has done and is doing, it's, it's an ongoing thing in verse 5, and that is his protection of his people. Now, it's important to understand what this verse is saying and what it's not saying. Because prosperity preachers take verses like this, twist them, mangle them, and then apply them in wrong ways that leave Christians disillusioned down the road. So let's read the verse, and then let's talk about what he's saying and not saying. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. There's something God the Father has done. Because of that, those that are born again have a salvation that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. And thirdly, verse 5, those same believers are shielded by God's power until the coming of that salvation is ready to be revealed. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, this is speaking of providence. This is speaking of divine protection. What is that? What is it not? The false gospel of prosperity is, oh, don't worry, name it and claim it. You'll never be sick and you'll always have money. That is heresy. It's blasphemous and it's nowhere taught in the Bible. That is not what, this is not saying, once you're saved, don't worry, you'll never suffer. And I can say that with authority that that's a false gospel because every single prosperity preacher will die or has died. The death rate among the prosperity crowd is still one per person, just like the death rate among the non-prosperity crowd. So, okay, so what is he saying? What is he saying? Well, he's not saying you will never have to suffer. This is not divine protection from any and all suffering. It is rather divine protection in the midst of our suffering. That is not only the context here, it is the context of Peter, it is the context of the New Testament, it is the context of the Bible. The Bible says, friends, this morning, whatever you're going through, whatever God is currently appointed for you to go through, there is no way if you know Christ you will ever be abandoned by God. You may feel abandoned at times. I may feel abandoned at times. I may feel like my prayers are going nowhere at times. I may feel, uh, the, you know, episodes of existential loneliness at times. But we're, we have the reminder in Scripture that if we know Christ, whatever we're suffering, whatever affliction we're going through, whoever is hassling us for our faith at school or in the marketplace, God will never abandon his elect. Isaiah 43, 2, great verse. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will be with you. And it means, hear this, the great lie 
when we are Christians and find ourselves suffering is the lie that God has forgotten me. I've bought into that. You've bought into that, if you know Christ. That's the great lie. That's the great lie that is so deadly spiritually and theologically. Again, one more quote from Paul David Tripp, his book on suffering. Good, great book. But he nails us. The central lie of Satan to all God's suffering children comes in the form of this question. So this question is the great lie from the great serpent. Where is your God now? You're on the sickbed. You've gone through financial ruin. Somebody's betrayed you. One of your children has gone off course spiritually. You've received a dreaded diagnosis. Somebody at work has it in for you. Somebody at school has it in for you. Your marriage has become a battlefield of conflict. Your neighbors have turned, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Chronic pain, all the different things we suffer. The great lie from the devil, the great lie from the demonic realm, from the dark ones, is when they whisper in your ear, where's your God now? The lie embedded in this question is that our suffering, here's the lie, is that our suffering is somehow kind of clear evidence that we have been forsaken by God. And Peter, hear this, wants you to understand the exact opposite is true. That actually your suffering is validation of your Christian life. That is why the prosperity gospel is so deadly and so dangerous. So just to be as clear as I can, because this one's so critical, the reason, friends, young people, that every true born-again Christian can be hopeful in the face of both natural evil and moral evil, natural evil meaning suffering that comes from disasters and disease, moral evil, suffering that comes from the hands of other sinful human beings, the reason any Christian can be hopeful in face of either natural or moral evil is because a good wise, loving, all-powerful Heavenly Father is in charge of every detail in His universe. Even when He sovereignly appoints suffering and affliction and trials in the lives of His people. And I pulled to the witness stand people like Joseph, where it's very clear who was directing all that. God was. Or Job. Again, Satan, immediate cause, ultimate cause becomes very clear, God was directing the show. Or Esther, or Paul, or Jesus himself. When Satan and his actions, again, are the immediate cause sometimes, God is always the ultimate cause. And because of that, if you know Christ as Savior, you can be assured that a wise, loving, heavenly Father who is all-powerful is working all things in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for your good, his purposes, his kingdom, and his glory. That is why the doctrine of providence is so powerful and so important in the Christian life. That is why I keep standing up here recommending John Piper's great big red book, Providence. Yeah, it weighs four pounds. Okay. However, it is the work of his lifetime as magnum opus, and it is rich, and it is deep, and it is not just a theological tome. It is life-giving because it is a massive deep dive and exegesis into the text why God's providence is such an encouraging doctrine for his people.
So that's the first reason why a Christian can be hopeful is what God the Father has done and is doing. The second reason a Christian can have real hope is connected to the Son, God the Son, second member of the Trinity. That's in verses 6 to 9. And this has to do with his second coming, his next coming. Verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come again so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is honored, is revealed. So the next reason we can have real hope if we know Christ is connected to God the Son, and it has to do with his second coming. Though you have not seen him and love him, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. It's a contradiction, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, to be a joyless Christian. For you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This is directly, directly connected to the Son and his second return. So the second coming, when he comes to reward his people, and when he comes to judge the nations, this is why God's people can be joyful. Now, the difficulty is the more affluent the culture, the less we think about the afterlife, the less we think about the future like this. We get absorbed in the now. But when you're under persecution and you're suffering and you're threatened with death, it is a great hope of the afterlife and a great hope that Christ actually is going to return and come back to rescue his people and judge the nations. And that's exactly why this second hope is so powerful. So something first that God the Father is doing. Something secondly, God the Son is doing. And, is, and thirdly, for the reason a believer can have hope, is connected to the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and his work in history. And that is in verses 10 to 12. Concerning, notice the wording, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. Who's the Spirit of Christ? That's the Holy Spirit. When he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. That means the Old Testament Scriptures were the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, speaking through the prophets of the coming Messiah, both of his suffering and his triumph and resurrection. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. So the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets, and Peter says, it wasn't just for the prophets' sake, it was actually for those reading this letter. That includes us. That includes us. When they spoke of things that they have been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. So the third reason, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, that genuine hope is available is because of the Holy Spirit's work in history. Specifically how for centuries, this text says, he spoke to the prophets, he spoke about a salvation that was to come, he spoke about the sufferings and triumph of Messiah Jesus, and then Peter even goes beyond that and says, you know what, this message wasn't just for those prophets themselves, it was for you who are reading this letter hundreds of years after the prophets spoke, and again, Extension is, it's for us here today. Powerful affirmation. So three reasons, each reason rooted in a different member of the Trinity. It is not an accident, and I think you can see the structure here is very clear. These three paragraphs are deeply rooted in Father, 
and then in Son, and then in Holy Spirit. Very Trinitarian, very intentional. Now that leads to our summons this morning. What is our summons? What, are we, what, what, what is this text, what is this letter summoning us to? And that is pretty clear. And I'm going to address my summons to two groups. And then at the very end, I'll recommend a couple commentaries on this series. First of all, the summons of 1 Peter to those who don't know Christ and have never been born again. You're not sure where you stand spiritually. Bible says our greatest need is not just to be delivered from temporal suffering. That is a great need. Our greatest need is to be delivered from eternal suffering. That's our, that's our greatest need. And the Bible says that can only happen if we go through spiritual rebirth. It doesn't happen by just going to church and being religious or singing in a choir or getting baptized or getting some inspirational goodies off the radio. That is not how you are relieved from eternal suffering. The only way to be delivered from eternal suffering is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be changed from the inside out by God's Holy Spirit. That's why it's called spiritual rebirth. That's why Jesus said to a highly religious unsaved leader in John 3, you must be born again. That's what it's talking about. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in England, in just a very normal sermon he preached in the the spring of 1874, nails what true salvation looks like. The title of the sermon, March 1874, a word we don't use much, the entreaty, E-N-T-R-E-A-T-Y, the entreaty of the Holy Ghost. But just listen to this paragraph. He captures what salvation and the moment of salvation looks like. When the Holy Ghost awakens a sinner... They become conscious that they have offended their God. They are alarmed to find themselves in a condition of alienation from God, and they want to be reconciled. They want assurance that they're really forgiven. A truly awakened sinner pleads, P-L-E-A-D-S, pleads in the present tense and cries out mightily for a present salvation. He cries out urgently today, today. Words spoken and preached in London back in the spring of 1874 still ring true right this minute. Are you crying out today, today, oh God, may the day be of my salvation Second and last, to those who are genuine followers of Jesus. What is the summons from 1 Peter? And here it is. How are you responding to God right now in the midst of whatever he has appointed of suffering in your life? Here's one thing for sure. You're not staying neutral. I'm not staying neutral. I'm either moving one way or I'm moving another and so are you. Some of us have gone through, some of us are going through, some of us are going to be going through very deep waters this year. And what sustains Christians is not explanations, but promises. If you look at chapter 4, verse 19, that really is the summons of the book. 4.19 is really the summons of this letter. If you want a verse that is the summons of what Peter is saying here. Here it is. And notice what it is and what it's not. So then those who suffer according to God's will should demand explanations and vindication. (laughs) No. 
St. Augustine's great prayer, oh God, deliver me from the lust for self-vindication that beats in the chest of all of us. 419, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That's the summons for God's people. Three commentaries. We like to recommend commentaries as we're going through a series. Pastor Tim does a great job keeping our library stocked with good research materials. These will be in our library. There's many good commentaries on 1 Peter, but we always try to offer one on the popular level, one on the immediate, intermediate and advanced. So popular level, Warren Worsby. Hard to go wrong with good old Warren Worsby. Intermediate level, commentary by Thomas Schreiner, who teaches New Testament at Southern Seminary. And advanced level, one by Peter David's first epistle of Peter.